You're listening to a message from Mercy Culture Church, home of Pastor Landon and Heather Schott in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information about Mercy Culture and ways that you can be a part of it, visit mercyculture.com. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. It says this, Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he sent to his disciples and said, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here, watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. Someone say temptation. The spirit is away and pray, excuse me, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 42, again, for a second time, he went and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43, and again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep, take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going and see my betrayer is at hand. I came to tell you this morning that no sin is greater than the cross and the cross greatly removed sin. The title of this message this morning is territory of the cross. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that this is the day that you've made and we rejoice and we're glad in it. Lord, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you breathe upon your Logos word, your written word, and I pray you would become alive. I pray you would become Rhema right now. Lord, I declare that your word is true and every man's a liar. We declare that your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would help us receive this word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to understand what your spirit is saying. We declare no spirit, but the Holy Spirit is welcome in this place. Come on, saints, pray with me. We say fear, you have to go. Anxiety, you have to go. We declare witchcraft, you have no power, no authority here. Father, I thank you right now that nobody came to hear me. We all came to hear you. So we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, we are stewarding a prophetic word over this year of expanding territory. Uh, This is a First Chronicles 4.10 year. This is a year that we're declaring the scripture every day over our families and over our lives. We're declaring, oh, that you would bless me indeed, that you would expand my territory, that you would put your hand of favor upon me and keep me from evil. This is a prayer where we are saying, Lord, you determine the blessing and you determine my response to your blessing. This is a prayer of faith that expands territory. 
And we're seeing this happen right now in our community. I'm getting messages from business guys all, all, all the time about them buying properties and their businesses expanding. I got a message uh, from a couple in our church yesterday that have been believing God for over 10 years to get pregnant and to conceive. And, and I got a message yesterday that they're pregnant and they said it happened on Heart for Mercy weekend. How many know what happens at Heart for Mercy doesn't stay at Heart for Mercy? We just got a message that there was a, a lady in our church that had cancer and the doctors suggested that she had this surgery. And one of our pastors had a word for this person and said, hey, we feel like you're not supposed to get surgery at this time, but stand in faith. And when you go back to the doctor, the cancer's gonna be gone. Guess what happened? Her, they, her and her husband stood in faith. They went back to the doctor. There is no cancer in her body. Come on, somebody say cancer go and never come back. Come on, this is a year of expanding territory by faith. Turn to your neighbor and say, expanding territory. Turn to your second choice and say, expanding territory. I want to warn you that this morning I'm going to be talking, I'm going to be preaching and ministering about temptation, sin, and mercy. Just heard someone's keys jingling. They're just getting ready just in case. They're just, you're looking at your spouse like, I know we shouldn't have gone to this church that said fear go on the building. There's a grandmother in here is like, I just hope he talks about tattoos for my grandchildren. There's a young person in here that's like, I, know, I hope he talks about casinos for my grandparents. <laughs> Turn your neighbor and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> it's like this every week. It's like this every week. I've been uh, ministering the gospel for over 20 years and and sometimes people get so stressed out about sin and you start comparing your sins and my sin is worse than your sin, your sin is worse than my sin and there's all this stuff and shame and so many times people have such a hard time just getting to the simplicity of the gospel. And there's been times where I've, I've met with people and they just, they're, they're stuck and they're bound and they can't see past where they're at right in that moment. And, and I have conversations with them and I say stuff like, well, have you murdered someone? And they're like, no, I haven't murdered someone. You're like, well, well, David was a part of conspiracy to murder. Moses actually murdered. Uh, the apostle Paul oversaw the stoning of, uh, of Stephen. Like the, those guys did that. I mean, look how God used them. And then one time I did it, it backfired. I'm sitting with this guy and I've done this dozens of times. I said to this one guy this one time, I was like, well, have you murdered someone? He goes. <sighs> he starts looking around. I'm looking around what he's looking around. What? And I was like, oh no. I was like, well, so did Moses. <laughs> it was a quick recovery. <laughs> Sometimes we can get so stressed out about the things that we're dealing with and we don't have the perspective that God has on our sin. Psalms 130 says this, as far as the heavens is high above the earth, is great is his mercy. Someone say mercy. <laughs> Towards those that fear him or know him. Verse 12 says, as far as the east is to the west, so far has removed our transgressions from us. Now, sometimes we could just read these scriptures and read these words and, and we could be familiar with them without understanding the revelation of them. 
That word transgression in the Hebrew is the word pasha, which it, it's, it's used 93 different times just in the Old Testament. This word pasha is the word transgression or it actually means to rebel, to revolt, to break away from just authority, to apostatize, to quarrel, or I like, this is wild. It means to rebel through the idea of expansion. This word transgression literally means the rebellion through expansion. See, sin expands territory through rebellion and transgressions are birthed in temptation. Romans 5.12 says this, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so also death was passed to all men because all sin. Someone say all men, all sin. See, sin expanded territory through one man to all men. It happened in the garden. In Genesis chapter two, Bible says that God spoke to Adam and Eve and said, you're not to touch the fruit. Please put the scripture up. You're not to touch the fruit that's in the middle of the garden of Eden. He says, do not touch it or you will die. This was the, ten, this was the commandment of the Lord. This was the instruction. This was what was just in right to God. God said, I want to set this apart and I want you to refrain from this one thing. But he put them in the entire garden. He gave them dominion over everything, but said this one thing I want you to refrain from. Then enter the tempter. Scripture says that he came in in Genesis chapter three. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? If you have your Bibles to underline or you can highlight it on a digital format, underline, did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God has said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So she knew what God said, but she still entertained temptation. I wanna give you a warning that those that tolerate temptation will eventually give into it. Verse six, it goes on to say, when the women, woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, she took the fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband and he ate it. The eyes of them were both open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. That word tempter in the Hebrew is is, means this, it means to make a trial of a thing or a person. The tempter comes to try a person. James 1, 2 says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials or temptations of many kind, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, this is a different perspective of temptation that majority of us think about. Because majority of us, when we're tempted or face trials, we wanna tap out as soon as possible. It'd be like two UFC fighters getting in the ring and as soon as the, the referee says fight, one of them starts tapping out because they don't want to face any trials. 
But James tells us to consider it joy when you're facing trials because there's something imperfect on the inside of you that the trial is making perfect. I want to talk to you about temptation this morning because the, the, the temptation is wicked. And here's why. Because the enemy will tempt you of something and then accuse you of the thing he tempted you with. Revelations chapter 12 calls him the accuser of the brethren and he accuses day and night. We see this, you can put the scripture up in Job chapter one where the Bible says that Satan went to God or God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Job's, or, uh, Satan's response to God was, you put a hedge of protection around him. It's on every side of him. But if you take that, that hedge of protection off him, here's what Satan said. He said, Job will curse you to your face. That's quite an accusation against the servant of God. He said, his heart is really wicked and he only serves you. He only loves you because the hedge of protection is around him. I, I want to preach on just this, this verse alone sometime soon. He said, if you take the hedge off of him, he will curse you to your face. So he is accusing Job of what he's about to tempt him with. See, a lot of us don't understand temptation. We don't understand what temptation really is. And I'm gonna say something bold and this usually ruffles some feathers and I usually get some unwanted messages on social media about it because people disagree, but I'm gonna say something bold. Temptation is not sin. And I'm gonna show you scripturally in a moment, but this usually upsets religious people because they love to think that they're better than other people. And that they think for some reason that their sin isn't as bad as someone else's sin. They love to talk about abominations of other people, but they forget Proverbs 6 says gossip is abomination. They forget about the sins that they partner with. And so they, they, they want to make you feel bad for being tempted. But, but I, I want to alleviate some of this stress and pressure off some of you. Temptation is not sin. And I believe I could show you biblically that that's true. Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake that, that he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So watch this. Jesus became or knew no sin, so he was without sin, he was perfect. But according to Matthew chapter four, and I'm gonna show you in depth in a moment, he was tempted by Satan. So Jesus was tempted, but he still knew no sin. So you could be tempted and not be in sin. But the accuser will try to make you identify with your temptation. So then what I'm tempted with now becomes my identity. And so I'll begin to embrace my temptation, call it my identity, embrace it, and then it leads to sin when the original temptation is not sin. Then the enemy tries to use temptation to discourage the people of God. So what he'll do is he'll try to tell you, see, you're not delivered because you're still being tempted. Can I tell you when you won't be tempted anymore? When you go be with Jesus. Can I tell you why you're tempted? Because you're human. 
temptation is not sin. So the enemy tries to get people to be discouraged because of their temptation. When you shouldn't be discouraged, you actually should be encouraged. See, let me tell you why. Because when you're being tempted, what you realize is that the enemy is still in the beginning stages of his accusing. And he's trying to get you to embrace it. See, a lot of people get get frustrated, discouraged because you have a moment of freedom or a moment of deliverance and then the temptation comes back and now you're discouraged and you think that, oh, I must still be bound in this sin. Hold on, temptation is not sin, you're not bound. Someone needs to get free this morning because the devil's been lying to you and you've been believing, Kim, that you're still bound in a sin just because you've been tempted with it. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. He could tempt you all he wants. But let me go back to that verse in Revelation. He says the accuser accuses day and night, but he is cast down. So do not let temptation discourage you. It's interesting that David took five stones when he went to go fight a giant. But the reason why he took five stones, some theologians believe, is because Goliath had brothers. Then he went and cut off the the giant's head. Why did he cut off the giant's head? Just in case another giant that was about the same height as Goliath, that sounded like Goliath, that looked like Goliath, he would be able to hold the head and say, I already defeated this one. I know I got some more stones to defeat that one. Listen, you should be encouraged when you feel tempted because the Lord that delivered you before can deliver you again and just because you're tempted does not mean you're bound the purpose of temptation is to get you to partner with the temptation to embrace the temptation so it can become sin James 1 14 says but each person is tempted And he is lured or enticed, tempted by his own desires. Then the desires, when they conceive, give birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The purpose of temptation is to get you to embrace it and partner with it so it can become sin, so it can lead to death. There's two words for sin in the Greek and the Hebrew, and both of them mean this, fundamentally missing the mark. It's when you're not even aimed at the right target. It's a violation of God's standards, willfully doing what is wrong, actions that are contrary to God's word or purposeful disobedience. Reminds me of my wife. Joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Joking. Now there's a difference. I need some intercessors to pray for me after the service. It was a forced fake laugh. She she really didn't mean it. There's a difference between a sin where you miss the mark, you don't live according to God's standards, and then a lifestyle of sin that you have embraced this behavior. See, In the church, we don't really talk a lot about sin because we don't want to make people comfortable. So instead, we let people go to hell. 
but at least they're comfortable on their way. We want to make church as nice and, 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 and as, as attractive and as friendly as possible. We want you to enjoy yourself. And we did all of this for you. And, and, and what can we do to entice people to come? You know what I love about Easter at Mercy Culture? We didn't do anything special for you. There's no show. There's no parade. There's nothing. There's no big egg drop. There's nothing. This actually wasn't for you. We had service for him. I asked him, what do you want me to teach on? We asked him, what songs do you want us to sing? Everything that we did was for him. You know what happened when we built churches around people? They didn't survive COVID. Because they were more afraid of a virus that was 98% survival than they were desired to go to that church that was for them. But it's amazing when there's a church that's built around the presence of God. You can't keep people away. No matter what the government tells, no matter how much distancing there is, no matter what the mandates are, that there's a people that said, I won't forsake the gathering of the saints, the worshiping of God. Bunch of visitors that don't know if they should clap or not right now. They're like, I don't know, I'm still figuring this out. What we've done in the church is we've decided not to talk about any sin so everybody's comfortable. So I won't talk about your sin, you won't talk about my sin, none of us will talk about sin and we'll all be lukewarm and be spit out of his mouth. You know the problem is, is when we aren't willing to challenge one another, we never have iron that sharpens iron. And you wonder why you could go to church and go years at a time and you never spiritually grow because you're never spiritually challenged. And you live in the same place that you've been for month after month and year after year because you will not allow yourself to be challenged. I have people ask me uh, all the time, they're like, uh, do, do we have to agree with everything that you preach or everything that happens here to go to this church? I was like, if that was the case, then Heather and I wouldn't go to the same church. We, guess, we disagree all the time. What I mean all the time, it's about a daily basis. And we will have those, those intense moments of fellowship where we're in disagreement on things. And then one of us will ask the other person, did you pray about this? And we're like, ah, no. Well, instead of sitting here and disagreeing, why don't we pray about it? Ask the Lord what he wants us to do. And then we'll get in unity with the Holy Spirit and not put in unity with each other. But watch this. Those are those moments of ironing, sharpen ironing. Those are those moments where we spiritually begin to grow because we're challenging each other to be more Christ-like. See, a lot of people don't understand is just because we talk about issues that, that God's word says is sin, that does not mean that you hate people. It actually means that you most likely love people if you care about their eternity. I would argue that you probably really don't love people if you are willing to let them willfully go to hell or, or, or unknowingly go to hell because you're not willing enough to have hard conversations to tell them the truth. We get this weird mindset in the church that we have to make church cool or acceptable so that people will embrace it when we haven't read the Bible and look at how many people left Jesus constantly. 
He starts teaching about eating my blood or drinking my blood and eating my flesh, talking about future communion. Many disciples leave. Rich young rulers, this guy was a greedy guy. He says, sell everything you have and go give it away. That guy leaves. Judas uh, Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. All the disciples scatter at the cross. Like this wasn't going good. And then you think that church should be just about making everybody comfortable and happy all the time. Listen, we have to be willing to separate the individual that is struggling, that God loves, with the sin that God does not approve of. I like to say it like this. We have to be unrelenting in our love for people and unwavering in our loyalty to God's word. Here's what's important for you to understand is that everyone has sinned. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So for all to have sinned means sin has expanded territory. Turn to the person on your left and just under your breath, just say sinner. Look at this room is full of sinners. Turn to the other person and say, no, you sin too. You sin too, I know it. All have sin means this. I love this. All have sin is not, thank you. It's not ignoring sin. It's an acknowledgement of all sin. It's not giving less attention to sin. It's actually being more aware of sin. So I wanted to go over with you this morning for just a brief period of time. Three sins or temptations of man. I've actually been waiting for a while to preach on this. That there are three temptations, there are three sins of man that every man is going to deal with. Every person is going to experience. And all of sin can be categorized within these three things. We find them uh, word for word in 1 John 2, 16, where it says this, for all in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but it is of the world. These three temptations, these three sins are found in three places in the Bible. It's found in the garden in Genesis chapter three. It's found in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew four, Mark one and Luke four. And the parable of the soils of Matthew 13, Mark four and Luke eight. And those are in your notes. You can go read those later. So I wanted to talk about these three temptations of man. The first one is this, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is sexual sin. The lust of the flesh is the body or wrong desires of the heart, the appetite of indulging of all things that excite or inflame a man into sensual pleasures. Now this is important about this one. This is the lowest form of temptation. Now if you wanna know where your spiritual strength is at, if this is one of your greatest temptations, this is the enemy's lowest form of temptation. Too many people do not break free in this area and that's why they do not do spiritual great exploits. Let me show you why it's the lowest form of temptation. Because scripture relates lust for food because, or it relates lust to food because the undisciplined person craves them similarly. Genesis three, verse six, it was a fruit that the woman saw was good for food. Genesis three, six then the first temptation of Satan 
to Jesus in Matthew chapter four was tell these stones to become bread. The first thing they did was tempt them with food or sensual desires. Look how Proverbs six relates food to sensual desires. It says for a prostitute could be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Again, in Matthew chapter five, verse six, it says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Scripture actually teaches us that we have to desire God's word with the same desire that we have for food or a similar passion that we have for food. We actually did a whole series on this uh, called Blessable that's on our YouTube channel where you can listen to that message and all the other ones on the Beatitudes. So let me give you some practical advice. One way to overcome this temptation or the temptation of sensual desires is to feed your spirit with daily bread by reading the Bible every day. And I know this doesn't sound that profound, but many of you have never been able to find the freedom of lust because you've never been able to break through in your daily Bible reading. At Mercy Culture, part of our vision is to take people from corporate encounters with God to daily personal encounters with God. And one of the things that we have for everybody is a daily Bible reading plan. Some people start reading the Bible and they don't even know where to begin. So we have two plans and both plans have Psalms and Proverbs that will help you feed your spirit or strengthen your spirit so you will not give into the temptation of the flesh. Let me give you some more practical advice. When you feel temptation of the flesh, get away from it. First Corinthians 16, 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. For every sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Get away from it. I'll give you this example. In Genesis chapter 39, it's a story of Joseph. And uh, this story has come up quite a few times in the last couple of weeks as different preachers and teachers have taught. And you know the story of Joseph, he was the dreamer. His brothers were jealous of them, threw him in the pit, decided not to leave him in the pit, then sold him into slavery. And he began to work for a man named Potiphar. But because the favor of God was on his life, he was promoted even in slavery. And so he became this, the first in command of the entire house. So we pick up in Genesis 39, verse 10. It says, although Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be near her. Is that underlined up there? Or to even be near her. One day, however, Joseph went into the house and attended to his work and not a single household servant was inside. She grabbed Joseph by his cloak and said, sleep with me. But leaving his cloak in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. This is the strategy for dealing with lust of the flesh. Get away from it. That means don't respond to that person that you went to high school with on Facebook. I'm talking to the 40 year olds in the room. That means do not tolerate the casual flirting in the office. That means don't walk by that person's desk when you feel that tractor beam of temptation pulling you in. It means don't watch that series on TV when you know that there's that flesh that's involved. You have to get away from it. 
Let me give you some more practical advice for dealing with this. Expose the temptation before it grows. I have heard the worst advice you could possibly imagine from some Christians on this stuff. They're like, husbands, just keep it from your wife. You don't want to hurt their feelings. They might be disappointed. It can make your marriage a little harder. Like you're going to ruin your marriage. There you go. Hide it. You deal with it by yourself so you're not in unity and you can put one, puts a thousand in flight instead of coming together in unity. That's horrible advice. Expose it. You're feeling temptation, expose it. We have one of our pastors on staff and his, uh, his granddad is 81 years old. And uh, he does this thing where anytime there's anything inappropriate on TV, he yells at the top of his lungs. Ugly! Mama, mama, get in here. Ugly! She's like, turn your head, granddad, turn your head. Come on, someone help me preach today. Ugly! Can you imagine if someone goes to the office on Monday, someone walks, ugly! (laughs) You might have to adjust this per whatever situation that you're in. (laughs) What am I telling you? I'm telling you, do not be a punching bag to the enemy. Do not try to, to fight temptation on your own. Expose it. If you're struggling, husbands, tell your wives. You're not telling them to hurt them. You're telling them to expose it so it doesn't have a grip on you in your marriage. You don't have to wait till we do relationship months every February to talk about this. You can get freedom in this now. Expose it. Expose the lies of the enemy. We see all throughout the Bible when things are revealed, God heals. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other and you will be healed. Number two is the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is greed or covetousness. What it means is this, you want what other people have. It's the eyes are delighted with riches or rich possessions, the frivolous vanities of the world, an avenue through which the outward things of the world, riches, pomp, and beauty inflame us. Really what it means when you have lust of the eyes or you're tempted with lust of the eyes is that you are not trusting God and in your relationship with God, so you're jealous of others and what they have. Do not covet is actually a 10 commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. We saw how the enemy attacked Adam and Eve with this in Genesis 3, where it says that he showed her food that was pleasing to the eye. Then he goes and tempts Jesus with this in Matthew chapter four, verse eight. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This is where he tried to tempt Jesus with all of the kingdoms, the wealth of the world. This is a great temptation for a lot of people that they actually give their entire lives for stuff that will burn They will give their entire life for temporal things that they won't take with them. These are things that people give their life. And here's one of the lies is that you'll just be happy if you only had this. 
I'll only be happy if we just got this bigger house, if I just got the upgrade to the ring, if I just got this new car, if we just had, had, had this vacation, if we just had this vacation home, and then you upgrade and you're living your life to upgrade. And isn't it interesting how every time you get the new thing that you thought would make you happy, the same void that you've had all along is still there. You have to understand that the lust of the eye is a distraction to keep your eyes off Jesus, to keep your eyes off the kingdom. That's why it's so beautiful what God just did at Heart for Mercy is so many people had their eyes fixed on God, their hearts aligned with God, saying, give me your heart for your house. Money and things do not own me, they don't master me. This is something that not a one-time offering will do. But this has to be a lifestyle that you guard your heart for the lust of the eye, the comparison of others. Matthew 5, 29 says, for if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better to lose one member of your body than your whole body being thrown into hell. Number three is the pride of life. The pride of life is the person that says, I don't need God. The pride of life is the person that says, I don't want God. The pride of life is the person that says, science is my God. The government is my God. I am a self-made God. It is a rejection of God. We see this temptation in Genesis chapter three with Adam and Eve, for he says to them, if you eat this fruit of this tree, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And she said it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took the fruit and she ate it. We see this with Jesus in Matthew chapter four where Satan took him to a high mountain, it says a holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple in verse five. Verse six, he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down and he will command the angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. The holy city or the pinnacle of the temple represents spiritual pride. All high places are slippery places of self-exaltation. Makes one a target for Satan to shoot his fiery darts at. This is important that you understand this. Pride is the greatest sin. Now there's no scripture that says pride is the greatest sin. But this is why I'm telling you pride is the greatest sin. Because pride is what keeps you from repenting of any sin. Here's what scripture says about pride. In James four, it says this. It says, God opposes the proud. That word opposes in the Greek means the tip or the point of a spear. Literally what this scripture is saying, that those that live in pride stand on the other side of God's spear. If you're standing on the other side of God's spear, it means you're not on the side of the Lord. It means that you are an enemy of God. Those that live in pride, those that operate in the pride of life live as enemies of God. Pride, watch this, is why Satan fell from heaven. 
He got tired of reflecting God's glory and he wanted his own glory. The prophet says this in in Isaiah 14, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning star, how thou had fall down to the ground, which just weakened from the nation. Satan fell from heaven and took two thirds of the angels because of his pride. Pride leads to self-destruction. Isaiah 14, 12 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Now, when we're talking about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, I don't want you to get discouraged. I don't want you to be overwhelmed, but I want you to see how sin has expanded territory through man. But it's important that you understand that Jesus is not intimidated by our sin. Watch, not talking about our sin does not help us. It actually hurts us. But when we're able to take our sin and not let it continue to expand in our lives and take territory in our family, then what happens is is we can bring it to the cross. We can bring it to Jesus. Romans 5, 8 says this. I love this. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is really important you understand this because there's this weird religious misconception that you come to Jesus when you finally get your stuff together. That when you're finally good enough or when you're not that bad, then you can come to Jesus. And then we do these, these, these math equations in our head. Well, have I done more good in my life than bad in my life? And, and so I, I guess I'm a good person because I've done more good and, or maybe I've done more bad. And so if I start doing a little more good, it will, it will outweigh the bad that I've done in my life. And then we're waiting to this place that we're good enough that maybe God will accept us. And church, that is not the gospel. The Bible says why we were yet sinners in the middle of our sin. Someone who connects with God through remembrance, just start thinking about right now, your lowest point. This is in shame, this is victory. Remember when you were a drug addict. Remember when you were living in sin. Remember when you were living with that person that you weren't married to. Remember when you were addicted to that substance. Come on, remember when you at your lowest point. Remember at your broken state where Jesus met you, where he's rescued you, where he saved you. Come on, he did not rescue us when we put it all together or when we made it look good enough, he came to us at our worst moment. Listen, when we're at our best, we are still just sinners. Watch. The counterfeit of sin taking territory is the lie that your sin is greater than his mercy. And this is what the enemy does. He came, the territory of sin came to Adam and Eve and said, you'll be like God. But they were already like God. They were made in his image. He said to Jesus, I will give you all of this. If you just worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms of the world. Guess what? He was already the king of kings of this world and heaven. See, the lie of sin is that your sin is greater than his mercy. 
And even though sin has expanded territory, what I came to tell you this morning is that his mercy is greater than your sin. It expands further than your sin. I love Romans 5.20. It says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This is the message of the cross. Worship team, come and join me. You need to hear this right now. That no sin is too great. No sin is greater than his mercy. What about an unpartable sin? You're not dead yet. You haven't done that. I came to tell you this morning that no sin. I don't care how bad you think you are or how many mistakes that you've made or whatever religious math equation you've made up in your head, why or why not you think God loves you or not. But my Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Someone shout more in this house. His mercy is greater than your sin. Go back to Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. I love the Garden of Gethsemane. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Every time I go there, I get wrecked with the presence of God. It's beautiful. We were there together. And watch this. Right before he goes to the cross, he goes to a garden. Now, why did he go to a garden before he went to the cross? And why did he pray three times in the garden before he went to the cross? Could it be that when Adam and Eve were overcome by sin, gave into temptation, partnered with sin, and allowed sin to expand territory through them and were removed from a garden, that Jesus had to go back to a garden and overcome what man could not do on its own. So Jesus goes back to a garden three times when he's feeling temptation, three times when he's feeling the pressure, three times when his flesh wants to give up, where he says, but not my will, but your will be done. Watch, when sin expanded territory through a garden, Jesus goes back to the garden and prepares it for mercy. I came to tell you this morning that no sin is greater than the mercy of God. And he takes your sin and he throws it as far as the east is from the west. His mercy expands farther. Maybe your sin has spread through your family. His mercy expands the length of the earth. from continent to continent. Psalms 103 says, how great is his mercy. Hear me today. His mercy is greater than your sin. 
I don't care how great you think your sin is. His mercy is greater. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Mercy Culture Church. If this podcast has blessed you, we'd like to encourage you to share it with a friend. To learn more about us, find us on social media and online at mercyculture.com. 